This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. Hello. How are you doing, Steve? You've not been so well, have you? I've, 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 had, I've, had a, I've been played by um, not lockdown illnesses, I would say. Um, it's been, it's, uh, it's been, I've discovered something even more boring than lockdown, which is being ill during lockdown. <laughs> uh, and, um, yes, and being unable to concentrate on things, which I suppose is... is you know, in a week like this, it's actually been a blessing in disguise not to be able to uh, concentrate on the, the manifold ways that the government has demonstrated its stupidity. I suppose, but I'm feeling I'm feeling chipper now. Good. Well, it's I'm great. feeling chipper now. That is, that is great to hear, and and it has been another sort of head in hands week for the government. And well, I don't know how else you can describe it. Mm. It's it's just um, that they seem to come up with new ways of um, uh, you know new new ways of um, landing themselves in in utter disaster and you know when the policy of the country is being made by 22 year old uh, 22 year olds who, who uh, play for Manchester United and people you know want to spend 900,000 quid repainting a plane and um, uh, and um, you know people um, uh, well, we, we're about to we're about to plunge into another new Brexit advertising campaign, aren't we? Which is co- going to cost untold millions. A shock and awe Brexit advertising campaign. Um, you, you you just um, you just wonder, you know, 
I mean, well, we know who's in control of the government, but, but the direction in which we're being steered just just seems increasingly bizarre. You know, Indeed. Dominic Cummings is, Indeed. you know, he, he just, he's not, he, 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 the idea that Dominic Cummings is, is, a, is a, a, a total genius with, with uh, you know, he sees the entire chessboard and sits at the centre of, you know, this, this web like, uh, like Moriarty, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it kind of is unravelling, isn't it? Day by day. Anyway, <laughs> well, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But we'll get to yeah. all of those things, and I've got views on all of them. Um, yes, good. Especially I'm the glad. plane. I've got. A, I've got. An, I've got. I've what got a dull a podcast strong. it would be it if would. I said, "What about Marcus Rashford?" And you went, "I've got no, no opinion." <laughs> yeah, no comment. Well, what, what about what? Yeah. What about that? Yeah, no comment. <laughs> um, well, it's a special podcast this week, actually, because we have, of course, got the news. And um, and like I've told you throughout lockdown, if you are just getting the news from us, I know a lot of you in in you know in happier times have just got your news from us, and that's brilliant. But please do check in with the New European website or the daily briefings, or they're five days a week now, um, just to make sure there's nothing you are doing that you shouldn't, or things you don't think you can that you can. Um, it is worth in these most newsy of times just having a little peek elsewhere as well. Um, so we'll do the news then. We've got a brand new segment. We've got a brand oh, yeah. new segment. Matt Withers, who is sort of, um, he's a very experienced journalist, but he's a sort of behind-the-scenes guy. He's behind our podcast uh, suite, not just ours, but the other ones that... Um, yes, the, 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 the Arch and the company that we work for do, yeah. Uh, he, he's uh, he's going to take on a bit more of a sort of um, in, interview section. And, 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 and this week I'm really excited because he's interviewing Charlie Connolly, who I'm a great fan of, who does lots of great work in the, in the arts and culture section, of course, um, with regards to literature in the New European. Um, so he's going to be talking, well, I'll tell you the details about it when we get there, but he's going he's to be talking to Charlie. Um, so that'll be in the middle. And then, of course, as always, we will crown a Brexiteer of the week. Uh, but first, Steve, um, let's get to, to that news and um, maybe, maybe we should start with Marcus Rashford. Well, or, I mean, or is it is he Daniel Rashford? Because <laughs> because Hat Mancock said called him Daniel Rashford, didn't he? Did, he? Yeah. Um, you know, as if anyone would get Hat Mancock's name wrong. Well, quite. That, that would be that would be crazy. That would. That um, would. Uh, it was a bit of a, a bit of a cock up in a tight situation anyway to get um, to get Marcus Rashford's name wrong. Um, yeah. It but was three cheers for for Mr. Rashford, though. I mean, it's good to see young people getting involved, especially young people who've got a voice. And and I think you know, footballers often we know that they get paid lots. And my argument always is, well, there's not many people as good as Mar- Marcus Rashford playing football. So it's a you know, it's market forces and all that. But we know they they get a bad name for driving round in you know matte green Lamborghinis and wearing lots of expensive jewellery and partying with strippers and stuff that's not a reflection on Marcus Rashford I've no um and no knowledge what car he drives or how he likes to party but it's good to see a footballer who seems I don't know whether he's just been super well advised and if he is then his advisors are certainly worth the money or if he he's just he, you know he's been he's been brought up in a way that he understands these things and he he talks to the everyman doesn't he and I think uh, so I, 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 it's just great I think to see him talking in totally. in, in the in the in the manner he has in in a, in a calm way as well not banging his fist and being angry just in a calm way explaining the issues and in the end getting a getting a government U turn so you know all all power to that man's elbow 
Um, it turns out he's not just got a cracking right foot, he's also got a pretty sharp brain, as far as I can tell. Uh, yes, and, you know, I mean, if, if he's being nudged towards it, is that really a bad thing? But, I mean, there's no real evidence to suggest that he has been nudged towards it. He's clearly somebody who, I mean, he, he talked quite movingly, didn't he, about, um, you know, about his own experiences of people checking up to see that he wasn't going hungry and that he was eating, yeah. you know, he had enough to eat yeah. when he was a, a little kid. And, I, you know, I, it's, it's amazing how, you know, clearly... Labour had been nudging at this for a while, hadn't mm, they? And, mm. and on the night of the U-turn, and we can, we'll talk more about U-turns in general in a minute, on the night of the U-turn, you know, Labour had, had, had tabled a, a motion about this, hadn't they? And they were going to attack this. And what would have happened, there would have been some impassioned speeches made. Rebecca Long-Bailey was involved, wasn't she? And, um, you know, people would have, people would have, have, have said, you know, the correct things in the House of Commons, and then the Conservatives would have, the government would have would have won with an eighty vote majority, presumably. Or you know, there was, there was going to be a slight, there was going to be a small rebellion, wasn't there? But I don't think the government's majority was ever in doubt. So, um, so hats off to to, um, to Marcus Rashford, um, and um, it, amazing, isn't it, that Hat Mancock said footballers only at the start of this at the start of this lockdown Hatman Cog rather to give him his real name said um, footballers should should be get more involved you know and uh, when footballers uh, do get involved then uh, it didn't really go that well for the government um, so you know, that was one humiliation there's been other humiliations um, along the way it's, as I say it's just been an extraordinary uh, extraordinarily uh, poor week again for the government. Um, I was really taken by this, um, the, the the sort of the, um, the the hyping up of the possibility of these trade deals with uh, New Zealand and Australia. Um, it's looking increasingly likely, isn't it? I think that Trump's sort of trade envoy, what's he called, Lighthizer, mm-hmm. um, has, has kind of indicated that you know the US trade deal which everyone said was signed, sealed and delivered, it doesn't look like it's going to be done um, this side of the election in, in America in November, you know. So, I mean, at the moment, it looks, and, and you know, let's touch wood and cross our fingers and everything else, but at the moment, it looks very unlikely that, that Donald Trump is going to be the president who signs that trade deal. Um, so, um, so we're, we've gone into this thing where we are hyping up trade deals, possibility of trade deals with New Zealand and Australia as being the, the first ones that the independent uh, Britain is, is able to do after the transition period ends. And um, it's amazing that the New Zealand deal has got an impact. It says there'll be a 7.3% rise in UK trade with New Zealand now. We do 1.5 billion, sorry, worth of, um, of trade of exports to New Zealand at, at, at the moment. So that will re- uh, go up to 1.61 billion, which is which is good, isn't it? You know, I mean that is good. Australia, um, we're looking at a, a, a net one billion gain from Australia, um, but in February the UN, yeah, it, I mean this is all good news. So so it's 1.11 billion. That is going to be the, the the gain out of these two deals if and when they are done. Um, but in February, the, the the UN did an estimate of the cost of a No Deal Brexit for the UK, and it was twenty five point five billion a year. So you know, so we're looking at 
trying to find another 23.9 billion. And, um, you know, Australia and New Zealand, you know, that, I guess we, we are going to run out of countries uh, at one point, aren't we? Um, I so, think we're um, fast running out of countries. So that. <laughs> um, uh, but we will get access to Tim Tams out of it. Did you see that? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I mean, have you ever had one? I haven't had one. Um, they're, apparently they're like penguins, aren't they? Uh, I, th- I thought they were like... I thought they were, I, I've, I've no idea actually, but I presumed in my rather tiny mind that they were like, what are them, is it y- yam yams or something, them sort of sort of um, sugary pastry sort of things? I thought they were kind of like Oh, that. I don't know. Anyway, maybe somebody with, uh, maybe, maybe a listener with more Tim Tam experience than us can, um, can tell us what they're, uh, what they're all about. But, um, but yeah, so 23.9 billion left to find. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that, that caught my eye, which is non-Brexit related and non-government related, is have you seen what Vladimir Putin has had installed in his house? Ooh, is it a? I would imagine it'd be something like a like uh, like a huge ray gun to point at the moon or something. Uh, to, something to like that. Yeah. It. I, I presume that's probably what it is. Actually, yes, it's something like. Well, it is. It's a um, it's a special disinfectant tunnel. Ooh. So if you want to meet Vladimir Putin at his house, he may you, you know they say you must first you must pass through the special disinfectant tunnel. <laughs> what and I would say with that is, I'd be a little bit nervous. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now it it, spra- it is a tunnel. <laughs> it sprays you with a fine water mist, which has obviously got some disinfectant in it to protect against the risk of coronavirus uh, i don't think it puts disinfectant in the body as president trump suggested would be a, a good thing but uh, <laughs> it's on the outside of the body but you do you are going to wonder aren't you if you, once you enter the tunnel if the floor is going to open and you know a, a, a pool of sharks and piranhas bond style will uh, will appear i would be which i would i would think twice about entering vladimir putin's uh, disinfectant tunnel wouldn't you I, I certainly would. I think I would stay away from Vladimir Putin's house. To be honest, I, I, I did, of course, once say to him, "Come and get me, Vlad," didn't I, on the podcast? So I don't think I'd be that welcome, really. I don't think no. he would, to be honest. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so there's that. So, um, so don't go in Vladimir Putin's special disinfectant yeah. tunnel. Just, um, I, think, who I think I think I heard on the John Peel show. In, um, <laughs> in in the, the sort of the early 1990s, three more from them later, as John used to say. Um, well, should we talk U turns? Well, U turns, yes. So this is what I wanted to ask you. So we've had this U turn on the free school meals. We had the U turn on the the non EU migrant NHS workers having to pay the the, the, the fee, the four hundred quid and, and we've we've since found out, haven't we, that we found out this week that they're actually still paying that fee. Uh, a lot of them are still having that, that money deducted. Um, so what do you think the next U turn is, is gonna be on? And you know, U turns used to be painted as a, you know, they were like seismic moments, weren't they? And it they showed that governments were out of control but do you do you turn still have the same sort of power to shock as they used to? Uh, I think I, again I've said this over the last couple of weeks because we've had we've had a lot of U turns and I mean I once opened an interview with Theresa May where it, it, it was during the um, 
during the 2017 campaign and I said, oh, you must be so tired. You must, you must be dizzy from going around the country so much. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, or is it all the U-turns you've been doing? And she sort of looked at me as if to say, I could, I could strangle you now, mate. And... <laughs> And it was a bit. It was a bit. You know, it was mean, but it got her on the. It got her off to a bit of a wobbly start and helped me out. And it was sort of cheap, but it kind of worked. And and I. But I think yeah. I mean, I'm not. I don't really mind U-turns so much, especially in a time of such chaos. Frankly, Um, you know, it was right that the government changed their minds on the NHS, and it was right that the government. Changed their minds on uh, on uh, on the on the school lunches with with pressure from Rashford, and I think mm. I think it, it's it, it, is it one of those media things? I wonder that we're desperate for a U turn because then we can say a weak government making U turn. Um, so I think every now and then a U turn's okay. I think the concern is <clears throat> when you've got a government that's U turning so much that it is getting dizzy, and this one is spinning round. Um, you know, uh, in- incredibly quick at the moment with all the U-turns, and I'm sure there's more to come. Uh, it does beg the question about the planning that went into the to the decision in the first place, and are they actually the right people to be making these decisions in the first yeah. place? So there is a wider issue that's not just about um, that's not just a media issue. Um, and you know, I I I, I, um, I, I that that is a that is a a concern, I think. That is a deep concern. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's... It, it's, it's funny. I was... While this was going on, I was... The, the Marcus Rashford thing, uh, and, you know, it, it, he sent his letter on the Monday, didn't he? And then uh, early on the Monday, and then it sort of dominated the news cycle all of that day. And then Tuesday, they wheeled out... Um, who did they wheel out? Was it Oliver Dowd? No, they, they all sort of merge into one. It might have been Shaps. Uh, they merge into one, don't they? And I think it was Shaps who said, no, we're definitely not doing it, and uh, we're definitely not U-turning on this. And then you sort of knew that they were going to U-turn, and then a couple of hours later they did U-turn, and then Boris Johnson shipped up at five o'clock at the briefing to say he'd only just found out about it that that day. And, of course, you know, they were going to look at it again. And, and while all that was going on, I was I was actually um, in in my state of slight slight delirium. I was <laughs> I started watching the first series of the thick of it, which I've not seen ah, for, for ages. Brilliant, and yeah, yeah. The whole thing is very reminiscent of it. Might even be the first episode of the of the thick of it, where you know Chris Langham goes oh, off to launch classic. a policy, yeah, yeah. then so uh, on the way to launch the policy, he's told to. <laughs> not launch the policy then when they come back they're you know they're, they're, they're told that they should have launched the policy after all and they have to pretend that it, at the press conference where he didn't announce the policy he actually did announce the policy and it feels like the government is, it, it, it's becoming a thick of it exactly it's becoming a thick of it um uh, administration um, but, uh, but do you know what it's i remember i think it's always been like that because I remember chasing Dominic McBride around Brighton and there were tomatoes being thrown over a wall at the media from the back of a <laughs> hotel, you know. And you thought, this could only... this If you put this in the thick of it, no one would believe it. And I think, actually, I think it's always been a bit like that. I, um, you know, I think it'd be great. And, I, and when you haven't had some insight into it, I think you get you kind of think that 
government is made up of lots of very, very clever people who think very deeply about things for months and months before they actually announce it. And the truth of the matter that is that modern politics is so much different. It, 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 and it, I mean, maybe it's always, always been like this, but certainly since I've been around it for the sort of past 10 years or so, politics is often done on the hoof. It's often guided by polling and often not even that very intensive polling. It'll be a couple of thousand people here and, oh, off we go, and we're trying to get, you know, these are people who are making decisions based on them staying in power, often, based on the then then the really the greater good of the long term future of of the country, because they and in their heads they they get away with that by saying, well, if we're in power, that's better for the country than if the opposition are in power, whether it's Labour or Tories. You know, I'm not being party political on this, and so so they they justify it in that sense. But what we're seeing here is, I think, old seat your pants politics being st- still still going on in a time and I, and I include brexit in this as well i mean the last sort of four years in a time when we need proper sensible heads involved and you know even when we talk about blair and major and i mean it, they even really we should you know that comment about gov about people are fed up of experts we you know I, again and again our politics needs experts and i know there's been criticism of the scientists etc during the coronavirus outbreak but um the, the, <laughs> we're going to see more and more it's going to be like thick of it plus 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 as the rest of the year pans out trust me behind closed doors this is chaos it's an absolute panic no one really knows what they're doing you mentioned earlier the the shock and awe Brexit campaign, which is not going to launch for a good few months, supposedly, which is a weird thing, because if you want to shock someone and leave them in awe, you probably shouldn't sort of tease it out six months before. That's like saying to someone, later on, I'm going to hide behind the couch, and then when it's quiet, I'm going to jump out and say, boo, all right? (laughs) So get ready to be scared when I make you jump. That's not how how it happens, is it? Um, And that is typical of of not just this government, but lots of governments. But I think this government is doing it on fast forward because everything else is moving so quickly. I guess that, you know, like you, I am slightly reassured that even a government with an 80-seat majority um, can understand that some of the the conclusions it it comes to are wrong and be, be... you know, be pushed into doing things. And, you know, you and I are children of, well, uh, um, certainly I am. The revolution. You know, children, children of the revolution. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and you, I, I will not be fooled. Um, um, but we're sort of, you know, we are Thatcher's children mm. in a way, and mm. we are used to, um, you know, the lady's not for turning and all that. Well, mm. you know, it took, it took, I mean, she had to go before the, the poll tax thing unraveled. You know, if she 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 certainly would have, you know, seen out that third term. Um, whether oh, yeah. she would have yeah. stood in another election is is doubtful. If she'd have gone, actually, you know, I've listened, and this maybe the, this community charges we've laid it out isn't quite right, and you know, I will think about it. Um, so we, you know, we we sort of grew up with somebody who wasn't you turning. You know, the the, the Blair administration. Which which followed major U turned all the time. Blair U turned all the time, uh, and it's been um, 
it's been sort of fairly constant since then. So uh, I don't so know maybe... if it's a sign. I, I, just to underline my point, I don't. I, I don't necessarily think it's a sign of weak government. I think it actually can be a sign of strong government. But if it's happening on a weekly basis, then the questions then that it, need to be yeah. asked are: Are these the right people that are in charge? Yeah, what will the next the one right... be then? What's the next one? Well, well, that's 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 what I wanted to ask you. You know, I mean, are we really going to spend nearly a million quid on repainting a plane? It seems fairly clear that. You know, we, we probably are. It seems like a lot of money to me. I think, I mean, I'm not a professional painter, Richard, but I think I would do it for less. How much well, would you charge to repaint a plane? Well, I'll tell you what I'd do with that plane is, and I mentioned footballers having these, I don't know if you've seen, but they have these, if you go down, if you go, if you hang around well, you in Kensington, get Rashford to if you get, <laughs> yeah, you could fancy, if you go, if you go, he's about to be busy, if you go down to sort of hang around sort of Kensington and, and High Street Ken around those places, you'll see a lot of very posh cars, often driven yeah. by by 18-year-olds whose parents are billionaires or whatever. And yeah. and the, there was a fashion, certainly a few years ago, and I presume it's still the case, for having them sort of matte, painted sort of matte black or matte green. Oh, yeah. And um, and I saw these a lot when I was around, I used to work in, in, on High Street Kent, and... I often, I often thought the, you know, the, the sort of boy racer in me, and I, I have a Nissan Note, so you know, I'm lucky if it starts. Never mind race anywhere. But the that that part of me sort of thought, oh, I like that. That's different. It's cool. And sometimes they'd be like camo. Well, I think this plane is as cool as it's going to be. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's really nice. I yeah. mean, it's like matte green. It's Premier League footballers are having their Lamborghinis painted that colour. Um, yeah, exactly. So what? Just leave it. Boris, leave it, or change, or change the national flag to Matt Green if we want to be <laughs> if we want to be patriotic about it. That's not a bad idea. I, I do or, think it's a I do think it's a, a ridiculous waste of money, and I can't. You know, it's akin to the guy saying we need a new royal yacht, isn't it? I mean, it, we just we the plane doesn't need to be painted. It just doesn't need yeah. to. Be. It doesn't matter yeah. that it costs. I mean, a million quid. It sounds a lot to me and you. In the great scheme of things, a million quid for a country like Britain is is next to nothing. But it could definitely be spent on better things than painting that pa- um, than painting that plane. It just seems like an odd thing to die in a ditch for. Frankly, I just you know. I wonder if the uh, you know I wonder if the Robert Jenrick and Richard Desmond thing, which we which we haven't really talked about very much so far, and you know we've not really got time this t- this week to go into huge detail now they've already there's already been a u-turn on that hasn't there which is you know i mean richard desmond former publisher of the express newspapers he was clearly a huge supporter of brexit and uh, the, uh, the the daily express uh, particularly has, has, has become um well, it's under new management now isn't it but it's it, it was <laughs> under richard desmond it became the, the you know the, the principal cheerleader for, was, um, for Brexit on, is, on Fleet Street. I'm not sure if... The, is Reader's Wives one of Mr Desmond... It, or was was at one point... I think one it was. Mr. I think it was. Did Penthouse, Reed, he, didn't he, he have? Didn't and did he? Reader's Wives back Brexit? Or? Reader's Wives did. But 40 plus <laughs> was... Um, that was Remain. Reader's Wives, I think, was Brexit. Um, Remain of babes. That's what we Remain. should have launched. Yeah. <laughs> The first spin-off. You and Matt Kelly launched a new European. You should have launched Remainer Babes. If only we'd, if only we'd have the vision. If only so, you weren't so interested in quality journalism. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe that's right. Yeah. So maybe, um, so maybe you know, a U-turn that confirms that Richard Desmond definitely doesn't have the right to to 
to sort of build on that huge space in the Isle of Dogs, which I presume is where his, his print plant used to be, isn't it? Or, uh, oh, yes, I think uh, so, yeah. Yeah, is, is, is that what it is? Um, there's also this thing, isn't there, about the, 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 the student nurses who were tempted mm. to give mm. up the end of their final year mm. um, uh, to come and work in the NHS and are now beginning to be let go, aren't they? And, mm. I, I, and you know, they, they've got no sort of job prospects. They've lost the, the end of their their training. See, with that um, one, the government actually doesn't need to do a U-turn on that one yet. It could just sweep in and go, we're going to change this. It doesn't, they haven't, they, they, they don't need, you know what I mean? They can sort of, it could be more like a, not a, not a U-turn, maybe just a, maybe just a, just a little turn. Well, yeah, I mean, they could easily say, we, we you know, we're cancelling the last year of your fees and your... Yeah, just sort that your, out your, now. Your, 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 fee, your loan for your fee, uh, sorry, your, your uh, loan, yes, your, your loan for your fees, your tuition fees and your loan for your living expenses for the, for the, the, the last year or certainly for, you know, the, the time that you, um, the, the, the time that you were working in the NHS. So it, that would be an easy U-turn to perform, I think, unpopular. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think that would potentially be... If they were clever, they wouldn't have to label that as a U-turn. However, they would definitely have to label as a U-turn if they, if they uh, asked for a transition period, for a, 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 an extension on that, because they really have, um, you know, got behind Brexit is happening, Brexit means Brexit, all that nonsense, haven't they? So that would be... A, I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed, we're definitely um, all for that U-turn. It would be the sensible thing to do. But they've already made themselves look foolish by not even suggesting they would consider it. I mean, is there any way... How would they explain that one away, do you think? I just I just cannot see how they would possibly do it. You know, I think they would... I think they could... I think they could survive the rebellion from the... You know the, the the Spartans, the ERG, the the, the nutcases, however whatever you want to call them. I think they could. I think they could get it through. But I mm. mean, it would surely it would just be too seen as that. That is a U-turn that would be seen as a, a humiliation, and they have painted themselves into a corner. Could they somehow um, blame the EU? <laughs> I imagine they would try. I mean, that's what they're um, thinking, surely, isn't it? I mean, you know. I, I mean, it comes down to the they they really do want no deal, don't they? And they 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 really, you know, I, I think that they are. I think we're now at a stage where, you know, they are unlikely to blink, and um, and mm. you know, maybe the maybe the EU will have to move again, or or, or you know, maybe. Maybe maybe there will be some form of capitulation over fishing rights or, or, yeah. or whatever. Uh, there are definitely have- people thinking, how can we dress this up? How can we, you know, how can we change the narrative on it so it doesn't look bad for us? But yeah. once again, and this has happened before, this was Theresa May's biggest downfall, and I said it right when it happened, and I said it on this pod, um, was painting herself into a corner mm. from day dot, and 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 I feel like the government hasn't learned hasn't learned that lesson when it comes to Brexit, um, painting yourself into a corner is a bad idea. And I know I, I have some sympathy with the with the um suggestion that, you know, this is a negotiation and negotiations, you know, are, are difficult things and if you want to, you know, you've got to say things publicly, they've got to believe it, even though you know, I get all that. But <laughs> 
it's just been it's been shambolic from the start, and I know that I was critical of the EU last week as well, and you know, and some people there was a slight discussion about that on on um, on Twitter this week, and I and I, I pretty much agreed with everything that was said on there, but the. <sighs> I don't think either side again has, has covered themselves in glory with with the negotiations recently, but there needed to be more pragmatism. They, just coming out and what actually probably we should have said is, listen, we're going to do the, the negotiations are going to are going to go on. We're not just currently going to try and play hardball in in the press, you know, in the in the in the Brexit sporting press to 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 force the EU's arm. Um, I, I, that was just the wrong way to go about it, and I feel that that is why this would be a particularly painful thing again. Because one, once again, they've painted themselves into a corner by saying this is going to happen. We are going to mm. do this, uh, and lots of things have changed since since then, and are changing all the time. And I, I honestly cannot see, and maybe I'm just an optimist. Um, I'm not actually, but really about anything. But I, I think it, maybe I'm being optimistic on this. I just Yorkshire's first optimist. Yeah. Pessimist is never disappointed. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, it, you know, maybe I am being optimistic, but I can't see how anyone sensible, and that not there are there's a lack of sensible people, I agree, but there are still some out there that are involved in this, and I can't see how anyone could back not increasing the transition period. I just can't see how, you know, we're not saying five years, ten years would, you know, even six months into the into yeah. this time next year might just give everyone the breathing space that's required. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I still can't. I, I still can't see it happening. The, the, uh, I think, and I think we've said before, haven't we, that the only way that you could possibly sell it is, you know, here we are. It, we're in November. We're in early December. We're about to leave. A trade deal is nearly, nearly, nearly done. And, you know, what we're going to do is we're not going to go for another six-month extension, but, you know, we're so close to getting a really good deal and mm. protecting all of these yeah, jobs yeah, that, yeah. I am gonna, that I am going to come back to the government and to, to the, the Commons and say, you know, before we all go on, before we, we you know, we, we leap into the unknown, let's, let's come back here in January and we'll get it done in March. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, okay. it's possible... But that would be too sensible. It does sound um, too can, sensible. Now you do I know you, you, you do know there's a war on, Steve. Of course, this week as well. Well, I was going to ask you when is when did when did I miss the radio broadcast <laughs> when <laughs> Boris Johnson announced that we were <laughs> at a state of culture war with ourselves? And now I find myself trying to. I've got a spade here, and I'm trying to work out how I'm going to dig out my culture war bomb shelter. Yeah. To insulate me from, um, you know... If you bought it at the windows and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go down in there with lots of um, DVDs of old um, old sort of racist um, um, BBC programmes from the 1970s <laughs> and stuff like that. And um, do I... Is there a sort of a ration, a culture war ration book that I need to um, to, well, to fill in. I, what, I, what um, I'll tell you is, I think it's I think I think it's it's gathering pace as well because last uh, yes we rec- we record this on a, on a Thursday and you guys do it on a Friday of course and and beyond into the weekend. Um, and, and last night I was watching the uh, the return of Premier League football, which was a very odd experience and two not very good games really. Um, although your your boys did well, didn't they, Steve? Um, they, they did. I've seen the, I have seen the result, but I, I, I'm. I'm 
I'm affecting to take no interest in, in the, this okay. weird. All right, My, end I've of got the a season. pal who's taken exactly the same view. Of yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he is an Arsenal fan, all, so it's easier right. for him. <laughs> it just feels all wrong to me. You it's know, a, like, it's very strange. To, we, we talked about this before. People are still dying, aren't yeah. they? I, you know, yeah. and I know it's. I know it's thankfully now in the tens, but pe- people are dying every day, and, and, and we're pretending to get excited about people playing football. It is strange, but nonetheless, I did watch it. But on in the on in the also on in the room because I was watching it on a device, and also on in the in the room where I was seated was a um, a reminiscence on Channel Four of uh, Big Brother. Um, oh yeah, you remember the long running series? I think it did about ten ten or twelve years on Channel Four and. And then went on Channel Five. I think now I don't think they do it at all now, do they? But um, <clears throat> but of course, made stars of lots of ordinary people, and um, you know, was a whether you liked it or not, for a few, good few years in the early um, in in the early part of this millennium, was a cultural phenomenon, not just in this country but across the world. And mm. they replayed some of their favourite bits of the first um, season. Um, which of course was famous for Nasty Nick, and uh, oh, yeah. and, I, and I, it, during halftime I took my <clears throat> headphones off and I was making a cup of tea. Under the nun, and um, and it, it said now they were introducing this replay of this episode and they said now just to make you aware we have had to change some of the episodes because some things which may have seemed appropriate in the year two thousand are certainly not appropriate now. And I was thinking, what could that have been that happened on? I don't remember any. Any, there was obviously a, a, a very famous, much m- many years later, famous racist incident on Big Brother. But yes, I don't remember was, any. Yeah. I don't remember anything going on in the in the first series, the second series. And I, Not and particularly, I, no. No, it's, and it's so now. I'm I'm going to try and find that out because um, uh, you know it has has life changed so much? You know, I, and I, and I was completely blind to it then. I'm sort of questioning myself um, because I was only. I was only a student at the time, and I can tell you I spent most of that summer watching Big Brother. Um, <clears throat> so I hope I, I hope I didn't miss it. I, I hope I, you know, I hope they're just being oversensitive. And it's I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine that it can be racism. I, I wonder if it's something else. But anyway, um, there are there is a b- bit more serious uh, stuff going on in, outside of the reruns of Big Brother, um, and our right wing journalists are getting very upset, aren't they? They are, yeah. I mean, we've got everyone from Sarah Vine, Charles Moore, uh, uh, Madeline Grant, she writes for the the Telegraph, so does Charles Moore, of course. We've got Peter Hitchens. All of these people are declaring that there is a, you know, there's this, a culture war going on. Uh, it's, it's obviously come out of the the um, the, the, the Black Lives Matter thing mm-hmm. and the Colston statue. Thing and what's now going on with the statue of um, the Cecil Rhodes in, yeah, in Oxford? Um, you know, it, it, and it, it seems to me to be there seems to me to be a fairly desperate and naked um, uh, attempt by right-wing journalists to, to dress this up as a, a sort of a, 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 a you know a huge culture war yeah um that will uh that that is being fought and and we must uh we must sort of make a last stand and um and peter hitchens in the in the mail on sunday by the way um um he, he wrote last week he was in apocalyptic language as you would expect mm. and he said that you know this this was a, a sort of a revolution that was going mm. on and mm. he said the left 
the left are already in control of every lever and power of an influence in Britain. And you go, well, not the actual government that makes the laws, though, are they, no. Peter? But um, I think the thing is with I, this, my, my view on this is that it is uh, good and healthy, actually, for, for democracies and civilised societies to constantly re-examine themselves and re-examine their culture and 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 make changes to it if needs be and you know that was my thought thought with regards to i don't believe we should be removing churchill statue you know much as the the man said some um abhorrent things during his life i don't think that that's a statue that should come down now but um, but only one person, to my knowledge, yeah, no one does. I know, I know. It's suggested exactly, removing Churchill's exactly. statue, and, and even they said, you know, let's not throw him in the, you know, let's not throw, throw him in the sea. Let, let, let's, you know, let, let's exactly. So it's Churchill. been it's been played up. It's been played up into something it isn't. What actually this mm. is is in 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 it's you know it would have been it would have been better if we could have done this in a calmer moment, but we didn't. And Britain is very good at, at masking its history. You know, in Germany, I spent quite a lot of time in Germany in my in my younger days, and that whole thing about don't mention the war they they were t- they were taught they are taught about the Second World War and and the you know and the Nazi parties, um, uh, you know, ter- terrible uh, the terrible things that happened. Um, probably probably even in more depth than, than we are here in this country, and they're willing and able to talk about it. They confronted it, and they've moved mm. forward as a country. We never did that with Empire, really, very well. Um, no. And, you know, as we said last week, I was brought up until I got into my mid-teens thinking that Britain had never done a thing wrong. Um, you know, that was, how I, that was the history that I was taught. We were, the, we were the, always on the right side, always doing the right thing, and that is clearly, very clearly not the case. Um, and you know, so we need to. We just need to come at our history better, I think, and to constantly reanalyze it and change it. And in a hundred years' time, something that someone whose statue we are putting up now um, and have no problem with, you know, that generation might. And if they do, they've got every right to take it down. You know, and and I'm not. I know this is not just about statues. I know this is far goes yeah. far beyond that. But I just think it's actually a healthy thing. I don't think it's a healthy thing for people to be rioting and that kind of thing. I wish that. And I know that the riots have been played up. I mean, what we saw last weekend was doesn't even really deserve to be discussed because it was just idiots being idiots, and there will always be idiots, and they will always try and be idiots and find an excuse for it. But and, and peaceful process is very important, of course. Um, but I, I, you know, it, I, I wish that the conversations would. We didn't have to get to this point and have a big conversation about it. It would be better if we could have had conversations going on about it, and we were brave enough to look at our past and say, "Well, do you know what?" Maybe maybe that was wrong, and we should do something about it now. You know, rather than mm. it has to get to this, this um, you know, this flashpoint that it has. But I mean, culture wars is nonsense. It, it, this is yeah. actually a healthy process, in my opinion. Well, I, I, totally, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with with that. It's interesting. Just on the statues thing, I on Saturday I was uh, I was out for a walk uh, with my partner and. Uh, uh, small, uh, small animal. Uh, uh, <laughs> Do we have to guess? Not, that's what not my was? partner. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, it well, was I want to guess. Was it a ferret? It was a dog. Oh, uh, I wish a it was very a ferret. Nice, uh, What's the dog um, called? Let's do a shout. Uh, it's called. It's called Mac. Um, Mac. Uh, he's very nice. What sort of dog is um, he? He's a, he's a little cocker spaniel. He's very nice. Mac, as in M A C. Mac. Uh, M A C. Yeah. My granddad yeah, had a yeah. dog called Mac. Well, there you go. I don't think it's the same one, Richard. It's definitely but, not. Um, no, Mac died many, many, many years ago. 
well, that's just what we told you. Um, <laughs> but we were out, and um, and you know, there's obviously quite a lot of people out at the moment, and there's not much else to do. And we were out for a walk in Country Park, and I, I could hear the, the the couple behind us who I think were a little bit older than than us, than even us. And um, and the bloke said, and you obviously you hear these things, and you immediately go, oh, Christ, I know what's happening next, coming next. And the bloke said, what about this this um, the, the Colston or something like that? He said, you know, what about this Colston statue? It's absolutely ridiculous. And you sort of bristle and wait for the sort of dread moment. And I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear much of um, much of, of what else was said. And I was kind of you know trying to speed up to block some of it out. I did hear. Uh, I did hear him and his partner. Um, it's, it's a bloke and a bloke and a woman, and I did hear him and his partner sort of um, picking over this for two or three minutes. I could hear him behind them, and and at the end, she she said, "Do you know what? We just don't know enough about this. That, that's the problem. Yeah. We don't know enough about yeah. exactly what you just said. Yeah. You know, we don't know enough about." Empire. We weren't taught about this. I don't know what to think about it. Mm. And I thought that was a really, really interesting, um, yeah, yeah. interesting and very honest reaction. Yeah. And Clive um, Lewis was on. Clive Lewis, uh, Labour MP, was on Sky News. He was interviewed by Adam Bolton last week, and, and I thought it was a really good interview. Actually, and he was saying similar. You know, actually, what we should be doing is pushing through, um, getting. Uh, you know, Britain's history taught better in schools, but also yeah. getting black history taught in schools better. Yeah. And Adam Bolton said, well, that's, you know, I think a lot of people would agree with you there. Do you think that we should bolster Black History Month? And Clive made an excellent point, I thought. He said, no, it shouldn't be a month. You know, mm. it should be on the curriculum. We should be, we should know about Britain's involvement in the slave trade, and we should also know about Britain's involvement in the abolishment of the slave trade. You know, there are people. Um, I think was it Thomas Paine, um, who yep. you know, the I didn't learn about that either. So it's not all bad. There are some good people in this story who did the right thing, and yeah, yeah. you know, and and that should be taught as well. Um, I, I'm not just but, saying we beat up on Britain in history classes. That is not the case. We just need to be yeah. honest about it. Because if you're not, if you if you lie about your history, you know, people Orwell keeps being brought up in this debate all the time. Now, mm. um, the you know, and the right try and claim Orwell quite a lot, and the left always try and claim Orwell, of course. And you know, be, because of 1984 and because of Animal Farm, what Orwell actually was, in my opinion, I'm a big Orwell fan is someone who didn't like, um, you know, uh, despots and totalitarian regimes, whether they're right-wing yeah. or left-wing. Um, you know, we we can see that from the fact that he went out and fought against Franco. Um, but the... the and the, and the point with 1984, of course, which the left, uh, the right love to sort of throw in the left's face, is that they're saying, well, we t- by taking the statues down, we're revising our history... And that's you know that's room one hundred one. Well, that isn't that is not no. what anyone sensible is saying. What we're actually saying is the opposite. We're saying take the statues down because some of them are offensive to people. And you know why should any family have to walk past um, a, an offensive statue uh, with their kids? You know and have to explain the history of it. And the kids wonder why on earth is it there then? Um, and we're talking about putting them in museums so that we can educate better. So we're not actually revising our history. 
we're, we're doing the opposite. <clears throat> we're making it clearer. We're making it clearer and we're making it more honest. So it's the opposite of Room 101. They're reading it wrong, absolutely wrong. True, true. And I think they're reading it wrong deliberately, aren't they? Oh, and, of course, and, yeah. And I did see that Clive Lewis interview and, it, and immediately afterwards people said it this is proof that he wants to change the curriculum. It's proof that there is a, a culture war um, going on. And, you know, um, I, th- I think that, well, we know, don't we, that before the last election, shortly before the last election, they were, the government were, or Cummings, were, were, were testing these sort of, some of these culture war um Issues that they were they were testing in in sort of red wall areas the idea of, mm. of whether they could weaponize mm. trans rights things yeah, that Labour yeah. were that were in the Labour manifesto yeah. and you know there were some signs that traditional Labour voters in red wall areas were reacting to them um, even more adversely than they were than they were reacting against Labour's um, yeah, yeah. stance on Brexit yeah. and I do think and I don't know whether you agree. Um, before we move on, that I do think that this is going to be the tone of the next four years and the next general election campaign. I think I very much, something I very that much they have landed on. Not, but this is nothing new. You know, the Liberal Democrats way back uh, in the early 80s weaponised homosexuality against Peter Tatchell. Peter Tatchell, um, I did. You know, and it turned out, and the, the chap who won, who actually turned out to be a very long-running and, and, and pretty useful MP, actually, what was his name, Simon... Um, Simon Hughes. Simon Hughes, of course, was homosexual himself and, and actually apologised years afterwards because there was, there was some pretty pretty nasty leaflets that that, that, that that sort of went round and you know so this is nothing new politicians doing this it's just i just think that like i said before about the u-turns they're not they're not a new invention we're just doing everything at absolute fast forward aren't we um yeah yeah apart from this okay. podcast which always rambles on far longer than it, it should it, <laughs> it does rumble on i mean we've got we've been talking about statues and now seems a good point to reintroduce um Matt Withers, who who is you Absolutely. know, as you said, he's he's part of the he's part of the new European team. He's got a, he's got an article with the I think it's the leader of Plaid Cymru, isn't it? In the in this week's print edition mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. the New European, he does really excellent uh, PMQ sketches on the New European website every week, and um, we thought we would uh, we would get him to talk to some of the people who write for the New European every week, some of the people that he interviews in the newspaper, and um, what's uh, this one is is, is about. Um, well, what's what's this one about? Do you um, have you got that in front of you? So the, do you want me to? This is about. So this is. Uh, he's, he's talking to Charlie Connolly, and I believe it's a, yes. about a book about uh, Phyllis Wheatley, who was the yes. um, who in in seventeen seventy three became the first black uh, woman to have a book published. Timely um, and fascinating. Here is Matt Withers chatting to Charlie Connolly. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. I'm Matt Withers, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by the writer Charlie Connolly. Charlie, how are you, and how has lockdown been? Uh, lockdown's been, um, well, as someone who writes for a living and uh, works from home and has done for about 20 years, lockdown's been surprisingly normal. I mean, I thought I'd live this rampant hedonistic life but it turns out my life is pretty much in lockdown whether there's a pandemic or not so yeah f- fine. You, you've so been an early champion of social distancing 
exactly yes anti-social distancing i've always thought of it but uh but but yeah it's i feel a bit like um things are so normal it's a bit like i'm out mowing the lawn at the height of the blitz or something it's it's, it's a, what a weird feeling for me in this week's paper you've written about the um remarkable story of a woman who to my shame i've not heard of until this week um for those who share my ignorance introduce us to phyllis wheatley Phyllis Wheatley, yeah, I mean, she's not a household name, and per perhaps she should be, because um, she was certainly a, a pioneer of black people in literature. She was, um, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty awful story to start with. She was born in um, West Africa, and when she was eight years old, in 1761, she was um, taken to America as a slave uh, on a ship where I think about 96 slaves left Africa and 25 of them didn't make it, some of whom might have been her family members, but... Um, she, I mean, you can say, use the word fortunate, it's, it's not really the right word, but she was spared working on the plantations and she was bought by a white uh, merchant uh, called um, John Wheatley, who, um, with his wife Susanna, they were about as kind of, again, progressive is completely the wrong word, but uh, but they were unusual in that they sought to um, educate Phyllis uh, from an early age and by the age of 12 she could read English and she could read Greek and Latin and um, she studied the poets she studied people like Milton and Pope and in uh, and also people like Virgil um, so she was she took she was obviously incredibly intelligent and she became incredibly creative because from her mid-teens she was writing poetry of her own as well as kind of reading and reciting things at, uh, at soirees and things like that and she um, became a, a really well-known poet, first of all in America, uh, but it was hard for her to get to get published. Uh, in those days, crowdfunding was basically the only way you could get published. And the Wheatleys put an advert in the Boston press um, for uh, subscribers to publish a collection of her work. But when it got out who'd actually written this stuff, no one believed her in the kind of white, kind of uh, the, the privileged white elite of the, of the town called her in and basically grilled her saying you couldn't possibly have written a verse like this you are a slave uh but somehow i mean imagine how horrendous that was for her she was only about 16 or so at the time and this this panel of of white men firing questions at her saying you can't possibly be clever enough or creative enough to to produce verses of this quality but there was something about her that, that convinced her and and you know god what, what what an experience that must have been um it the, the book didn't get published so she came i mean the bulk of the piece i've written is about when she came to england in 1773 because the wheatley's thought that was the best chance she had of getting her poems published and so she arrived in london um found a completely different country different atmosphere and her poems were published as uh, as poems on various subjects comma religious and moral yeah it's not a great title but a, a, a significant piece of work um and the visit was significant for her and for the abolitionist movement itself wasn't it it was. I mean, when you when you look at some of her early poetry, some of it is it. I mean, she was a teenager in a completely white household, and she probably didn't see many other black people around the place. Um, and so, some of her early uh, verse. Um, I mean, there's one she wrote when she was about fourteen called "On Being Brought from Africa to America," and it's it kind of makes you cringe when you read it now because it all talks about africa as the land of errors and you know, refers to it as the dark abodes and it's basically her saying how fortunate i was to be brought to this christian civilized country um but by the time she got to england that that tone had really changed and she was writing poetry that was kind of pretty basically abolitionist 
and um, she she came to a country where slavery was elsewhere. You know, we were we were responsible for it in Britain. We were you know, as the, as the Edward Colston stuff has, has shown recently. Britain made an absolute fortune out of the slave trade, but we liked to keep it abroad. We like to keep it you know, in the colonies. Uh, so uh, there, a couple of years before she arrived in 1773, there was um, a, a, a law passed that slaves couldn't be sent abroad to be to be sold, uh, which you know, in the great scheme of things isn't a, <laughs> a big thing. I mean, a long way to go, but that was kind of the start of it. And to have this, this um, uh, American woman slave turn up with writing this poetry and 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 some of it's beautiful I mean you can tell she'd read a lot of Pope and Milton and stuff like that because um it it, it that's the style because that's the atmosphere she she grew up with and was brought up with and um the, the abolitionist movement in, in its kind of infancy pretty much then I mean I mean there was always undercurrents of it but uh they welcomed this and uh and she was you know taken under their wing and it it was she did she was very successful after that and you've written it's plausible she may have visited bristol and actually walked past the very spot where the statue of edward colston would later be thrown into the water yeah she she was definitely friendly with a woman called hannah moore who became um a very prominent abolitionist she was one of the, the blue stocking literary group of of of, of women uh, of the time uh, and she was from bristol and she lived in bristol and these two two women definitely knew each other so i i, I can't say for certain but it wouldn't surprise me if she either when when she sailed from boston to to england that she might have disembarked at bristol and met hannah moore there or maybe the ship called at Bristol first and then went on to London um, but she definitely seemed to know her uh, and Hannah Moore was a very important voice in the early abolitionist movement in Britain and um, they there was correspondence years a few years later in in English newspapers where she's where Phyllis Wheatley is sticking up for Hannah Moore when people are, 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 are criticizing Hannah Moore's work she was a playwright she was a poet I think she wrote a lot of essays as well uh, so there was obviously this real mutual bond between Phyllis Wheatley, the American slave, and uh, Hannah Moore, this kind of English blue-stocking abolitionist. Why don't we know more about Phyllis Wheatley? It seems to me to have Hollywood Oscar winner written all over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it, there's good and bad side to her story i mean uh, although she was held up as this and she certainly was a shining light for, for the abolition abolitionist movement uh she, her life was pretty much unfulfilled in lots of ways i mean people say critics now uh, almost uh, belittle her poetry saying it was kind of derivative of, of of the english poets at the time but i suppose that was kind of inevitable she was i mean she she, she was only 33 when she died and that was long after she'd written most most of her verse so she still could have developed into a much more individualistic um, style of, of poetry but what we have it, it, it's really good you know I mean, it stood up on its own and the fact that she was this kind of for want of a better word novelty in who she was and her background uh, made a standout in in england certainly but um um it's, it is an incredible story she, she ended up um i mean let's bear in mind that the wheatleys were promoting her as this this great poetic new voice 
Yet at the same time, they still owned her as a slave. It was only after she got back from England, and, and the Wheatleys basically sent her over from England in order to get her poems published. I mean, she, she was also very asthmatic. Um, and they said it, well, the journey would be good for her health, the change of, uh, of air, the change of climate. But it was basically to get those poems published because they were convinced that she had this incredible talent as a poet, which she unquestionably did. Yet they still, in inverted commas, owned a human being. Uh, so she actually was granted her freedom when she went back to America after this uh, this trip to England. Um, but you know, it was kind of a blessing and a curse in a way. In that um, the Wheatleys all seemed to die in quick succession after that. So she was left without uh, her sort of uh, patron, I suppose you could say. Uh, and she ended up marrying a, a, another emancipated slave called John Peters, who ended up in debtor's prison. And she ended up just in declining health and, and died very young uh, at 33. So it is, it's a great story, but it's also a, a terrifically sad story. And also it makes you think if Phyllis Wheatley happened to be educated by this family, and she was very rare in that as, as a, a black person and be a woman of any color or background being educated back then, um, just think of the, the talent that was missed out and the voices and the incredible things other slaves had to say that we, we, we never heard, that were never given the chance, that were smothered. And, and you know, I think Phyllis Wheatley is a, can be summed up in some ways as an opportunity missed. It's just, she just, just illustrates what could have been if, um, you know, black people and, and slavery, if, if there hadn't been that level of oppression and dreadful racism. And it's it's kind of something that's even coming up again today. With you know, uh, this week there's been this letters from the this letter from the Black Writers Guild in Britain to the publishing industry in Britain, saying you know our books are now at the top of the bestsellers charts with the the um, with all the the demonstrations and the Black Lives Matter campaign, um, but black people are hugely underrepresented in publishing here america all over the world i mean i've been writing books myself for the best part of 20 years and i've written for most of the the publishing houses in the, the major publishing houses in this country and i must have had in terms of editors publicists commissioning editors copy editors um i'm probably worked directly with best part of 60 people only one of those people was black has been black and that's you know that's an outrageous kind of uh, discrepancy and you know it's a line you can trace uh, from phyllis wheatley to the situation we've got today yeah it's absolutely true it's uh, it, it's a very interesting situation it's remarkably sad really that it, it's taken events of recent weeks to, to put those books at the top of the charts um it's a fascinating piece, Joe. I really appreciate talking to you about it. Uh, if you're keen to learn more about the life of Phyllis Wheatley, and why wouldn't you be after that? Charlie's article is in this week's print edition of the New European on sale now. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Matt. Brexiteer of the week. Welcome back, and thanks, Matt. Matt's going to be carrying out a, a number of interviews in the in the coming weeks and beyond. Uh, well, let's go on to Brexiteer of the week, Steve. But first, um, uh, any recommendations? Because I, I, I haven't watched much TV for a while. Well, that's that's fine. I've been watching the TV for you. Um, oh, I will tell you. I will tell you some things that I've very much enjoyed um, uh, in the last the last couple of weeks or whenever it is since we we did this. I've been watching, and you, uh, dear listeners, should definitely watch uh, on the iPlayer, on BBC and the iPlayer, um, I May Destroy You. Uh, it's a fantastic um, new uh, 
drama series uh, which is about uh, appears to be well, it's about young youngish I think they're probably they're, they're probably in the in the late twenties early thirties uh, people in uh, London uh, um, it is a program about uh, different um, different um, uh, different types of sexual consent, I, I would say, without um, leaving any spoilers. It is, uh, it is extremely well written. Mm. It is brilliantly acted. It's really compelling. Um, the same also goes for something which I was unsure um, I would enjoy. I think uh, that's on Amazon Prime, uh, which is called Little Fires Everywhere. It's Sounds got a bit Reese like... Witherspoon. Um, I imagine that there might be some, some books that come out of this government that would uh, be titled Little Fires Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this, is a, this is, I think it's a six-parter, maybe an eight-part with uh, Reese Witherspoon and, uh, and Kerry Washington. That is about... Uh, I think you, you are lured into it thinking that it is uh, going to be about race. Uh, it is, in fact, um, about different uh, kinds of attitudes in the same way that the, the other thing is about different types of sexual consent. This is about different attitudes to motherhood and what all of that means. It's, it's, it's really, really powerful. A game with brilliant uh, performances. Um, I've also really enjoyed um, the, the second series of Save Me, Save Me Too, which is written and directed by Lenny James, which is on guy atlantic i think uh superb and um uh, and yet again looking at um, well it's looking at, at different um, family issues from the perspective of somebody who is um hunting for his daughter who has been um, abducted by uh, a paedophile ring um that it's, a is, jo- it's a really uh, jolly this is the jolliest yeah, recommendations are, yeah. i think i've ever heard Steve, they are. Right? <laughs> you have been I watching mean, the thick of it as well though which is well worth i watch. have been i have been watching the thick of it <laughs> Do you i know what? have I started. I, um, I, I started reading a new book this week. Well, it's not new because I start. I, I started reading it when I was twenty, um, and I've got a fairly big birthday looming in the next couple of months. Um, and I sort of thought, uh, well, it, I, I, I was listening to start of the week on on Monday. Well, I listened to it on Monday evening, but it, it normally plays out on Monday morning, of course. And um, and Tuesday is a special day in in literary circles. Are you aware of what day it was on Tuesday? Was it Bloomsday? Bloomsday. So they were talking about Ulysses, the James Joyce book, and I started it when I was 20, and I got to about page 30, 35, and something else obviously happened in my life, and I put it down. And I then, in order to... um, uh, I I can't remember. (laughs) This is awful. But I used to um, give books to people I was trying to impress, you know, as a little gift friends and maybe people I would like to take out on a date, that kind of thing. Um, so I've, I would often give, catch. well, my favourites were Catcher in the Rye, and yep. um, which, which is a great book, and um, uh, The Outsider, which is my favourite book of all time by Albert Camus. And I definitely gave Ulysses away. Now, I'm not sure if it was me trying to trying to woo a young lady in my young 20s or if I just I think I might have just given it to my pal. Um, but either way, I was trying to impress someone by saying, oh, look how literary and clever and I am. I'm a tortured poet. And actually, I'd never read it. And I thought, and I felt bad listening to Start the Week. So, I, so on Tuesday morning, I went and bought it. And I've so far not quite got back to the page that I actually got to when I was 20. So I'm about 13 pages in. It is... Um, 
it's one of those books that you have to read with the York notes next to you, you know what I mean, just to try and figure out exactly what's going on. So I'm, I'll, I'll keep you updated on my progress, Stephen. Hopefully, by the time I'm 40, I will have finished it. You will have finished it. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that sounds good. Again, this is um, it's fairly heavyweight stuff, this, isn't it? it is. I will. Um, I, what music have you been listening to? Because I have, I mean, there doesn't seem to be an, a great deal of new music coming out for obvious reasons at the moment. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, the there is a, can, there is can... definitely there, a lot. A, a lot of albums have been have been paused. I listen. I spent yeah. all yesterday listening to a band uh, called Let's Eat Grandma. Oh yeah, um, who are who from are, Norwich, aren't who they? Who are from Norwich and, and very, very well worth listening. They're two albums in now. Their first album um, is is in, in part spectacular, but but a bit more sketchy. The second album is a real excellent, complete piece of work, and they're only still very young, so I'm looking forward to listening to most. But that's not new. Um, there's not a lot of new stuff about. There isn't a lot. No, of new stuff I about. tell you what. I tell you what. I. I I've started listening to, and I, I arrived at this because um, because I'm a fan of the, um, the the Harry Bosch books by a guy called the American crime writer called Michael Connolly, and there's a really good um, TV adaptation of these books, and uh, which is again on Amazon Prime. Somebody's put together a, a sort of a he's, you know he is one of the million. Uh, detectives in crime fiction who likes jazz music, as all of them seem to do. And um, somebody uh, inevitably has put together a, a Spotify playlist um, of the, the music that Harry Bosch listens to in this TV adaptation. And, and some of it is by a guy called Frank Morgan. He's mentioned in a lot of the books as well, Frank Morgan. And I didn't really know much about Frank Morgan. There's a particularly, he's an alto sax player. Uh, had a, you know, it's a particularly beautiful tone instrument anyway, the alto saxon, you really could play it, and um, he, there's a beautiful track called My Old Flame, I've been listening to that by Frank Morgan, and he's an amazing um, story, uh, Frank Morgan, he was a sort of protege of Charlie Parker, he was the next great um, jazzer in the, you know, build as the, the next great jazzer in the early 1950s, played with Billy Holiday and people like that, and then... Um, as, as so many of these great jazz players did, he became a heroin addict and he spent the next 30 years as a junkie and he was in and out of jail. Um, uh, he recorded really, he only recorded one album when he was at the sort of the peak of his powers. Um, and it's an incredible story, you know, going, I won't, you know, I won't, I won't tell you what happened next. Um, but, um, but go and check out, um, uh, Frank Morgan, um, there's some beautiful stuff by him, but my old flame is particularly good. Yeah, okay, good. There's some, some good recommendations there. Uh, let's get to the Brexiteers, then. I presume um, you wouldn't have had too much trouble this week, Steve, picking a Brexiteer of the week. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to edit these down from the ones in the newspaper because all kinds of new stupidity has um, has occurred. Uh, we've got the Prime Minister. We've got Boris Johnson. He wants to spend £900,000 paying play. Um, what really stood, uh, stuck out for me, apart from the Tim Tams thing this week, was Boris Johnson saying a trade deal with the EU was possible by July with a bit of oomph. Well, it's not possible by July with a bit of oomph. And, and I thought, a bit of oomph? That sounds really familiar. That sounds like a thing that Boris Johnson says a lot. And the last thing that he said, um, he would approach with uh, a bit of extra oomph 
um, was the withdrawal agreement mm. last August. And, mm. of course, he said, with a bit of oomph, I can get you a withdrawal agreement. And, of course, he did get a withdrawal agreement, and he did get it through the EU, and he did get it signed. And um, and he now uh, says that that withdrawal agreement is unfair, defective, and disadvantageous to, to Britain. So what kind of oomph he's going to bring to the, um, to the trade talks, uh, I have absolutely no idea. Um, very interesting, by the way, to see the Belgian um, MEP Philippe uh, Lambert. I think did he was he in Highlander or did he play for Newcastle? Philippe Lambert. I'm not really sure, but he <laughs> he, he basically has said the EU should now stop negotiating with Britain because Britain is, is plainly keen on no deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's not much not much room there. Um, Nigel Farage. We should mention him, him leaving LBC, shouldn't we? He, he, sort of compared the, some of the Black Lives Matter's protesters to the Taliban. Um, he uh, says the police um, have uh, staged a total surrender over the um, over the statues. He said the government have acted with pitiful cowardice um, in uh, in what they've done in not sort of sending in troops or whatever to, uh, to, to quell these demos. Um, and he has said... Um, he has said that he is going to restart the Brexit party, probably under the, the banner of the Reform Party. He's going to run in the next uh, Tory-held by-election. The Brexit party will all restart again, and um, he, he is determined to, um, to determined to crack down on these protesters and, and hammer through a no-deal Brexit. And I just think, would these threats carry a bit more weight if Nigel Farage hadn't staged the total surrender with pitiful cowardice at the last general election when he stood down 300 or so of his candidates and he sort of abdicated um, his, his role in this whole thing. Um, Ted Verity is the editor of the uh, Mail on Sunday. Yeah. Last weekend, there was a photo on the Mail on Sunday. It was of a uh, white guy in a mask at the, I guess, mm-hmm. at the Football Lads Alliance mm-hmm. thing. He was punching a, uh, a black guy with dreadlocks in the face, and it said, uh, "It said, what has become of the tolerant Britain we love?" On the front page, and I would say that um, what has become of the tolerant Britain that we love? Um, well, a lot of it changed when Ted Verity um, was the deputy editor of the Daily Mail with Paul Dacre, and they ran headlines like. Uh, 208,000 passports issued to migrants in one year, migrants handed 5 billion tax credits, teachers battling to cope with the influx of migrants, four in five new nurses on NHS wards are foreign, there are too many migrants, uh, and the uh, headline, you can't ignore migration now, uh, which I think male readers would have found it particularly hard to ignore them. Um, Getting towards the end, though, the runner-up is um, the runner-up is, is Dominic Raab, um, right. and, and, and I've just um, I've just I've only just heard this, but have you heard his talk radio interview uh, about but, taking the knee? I have, yes. And funnily enough, I've been rewatching Game Through. I'm not a big Game Through fan, but I have been rewatching the final season in the past couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm this is good timing for me. On this taking the knee thing says Dominic Raab. I don't know, maybe it's got a broader history. It seems to be taken from the Game of Thrones. <laughs> Does he think that... <laughs> Does he it's think not that even called the Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean... The bigger question just... this begs, really, is does Dominic Raab, and I would not be surprised by this at all, 
think that the Game of Thrones is is um, historical fact, and yeah. in which case, does he think that there were dragons? Well, I think he probably does. I think he does. He? Yeah, clearly. Yeah, I think he does. But the Brexiteer of the week is Desmond Swain. Mm. Uh, it's Ted Verity in the printed edition, um, so you're getting some extra some content here. Entries. And I also, I also laid into, oh, I think I laid into Peter Hitchens and oh, some other people. Who, who knows? Uh, but go and check out the print edition. It, 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 there are added Brexiteers of the week for you. But Desmond Swain is the Brexiteer of the week, and I will tell you for why. Did you see Desmond Swain's magnificent contribution to Commons debate on? I think it was on um, Tuesday, wasn't it? He said um, he was. Um, he was sort of jibbing at, at Boris Johnson over the um, two-metre thing, mm. and he was demanding that this was was reduced. And Desmond Swain, um, who, you know, dressed as a sort of popping jay as he normally is, uh, he said, as long as the kingdom and this house resembles a stunt by 1984's junior anti-sex league, the recovery necessary to sustain his global ambition uh, will not be enough. Surely a yard is more than enough. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the right wing trying to appropriate George Orwell earlier on. And um, there we go. We've got a mention of the um, we've got a mention of the, the junior anti-sex league in 1984, which is a sort of a well, it, it, it's they are people that sort of uh, they advocate celibacy, don't they, for, for both sexes, which leads you to the conclusion that, you know, the only the only uh, procreation will be from artificial insemination. So I think he was in, he was sort of saying that, um, that, um, the, you know, the, the two meter rule is effectively preventing people from having sex with one another. I think that was what he was, he was kind of saying. He mentioned a yard. That's, that's, you know, that's not two meters. A yard is 0.9 meters. Um, I, and, I, I'm um, not going to get too far into this, frankly. No, and um, and you know people are going. Who is Desmond Swain anyway? And uh, you know you see him. He's got magnificent hair. He sort of, he often wears a cravat, doesn't he, and mm. stuff like this. He's already incredibly well. He's like a, a caricature of a Tory MP yes. from the uh, late nineteen eighties. And last year, um, you might remember that Desmond Swain was in the news because he refused to apologise for. Uh, there's a photo of him in blackface at a fancy dress party. Yeah. Um, and um, he, he, most people would say, wouldn't they? Like, um, like Trudeau said, well, that was a regrettable, deeply regrettable thing. You know, I do. It was a fancy dress thing. I regret the consequences of my actions. Desmond Swain said at the time, it was an entirely acceptable piece of fun, but I wouldn't do it again. The reason I wouldn't do it again is because you have to get go to some trouble to get it all off. It's a non-trivial. Ex- it's not a non-trivial exercise. Oh. Um, and for that, Desmond Swain uh, was re-elected as the MP for New Forest West with a majority of twenty-four thousand four hundred and three. I was just about to say this is clearly a man in a very, very safe Tory seat, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Desmond go. Swain, a fool, and the Brexiteer of the week. Uh, congratulations, Mr. Swain. Uh, Steve, what should the listener do right now? Please leave a lovely review of uh, this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, please subscribe to the print edition of The New European. Just go to theneweuropean.co.uk uh, and you can subscribe there. Um, you could join our Facebook readers group. Uh, you could just like us on Facebook. 
um, or you could follow us on Twitter at The New European, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Or you can follow me at Porit, P-O-R-R-I-T-T. Ladies and gentlemen, that was The New European Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, go and get the printed edition, £3, all good news agents, lots of politics, lots of news, but also, as we found out from Matt Withers, Lots of arts and culture as well. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, treat us with those lovely bagpipes. Here you go.